John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 739.mt2210 certificate number 32511 Luke and Laura For the 500th entry in the Omnibus last week, you pandered to millennials, to, to Gen Z, maybe. I don't know. I mean, Bitcoin's more of a millennial technology. I think so. I mean, there's probably Gen Z Bitcoin billionaires, but they inherited it from their millennial parents? No. <laughs> Impossible. I never get to do an anniversary show, but the 501st Omnibus will be pivoting back to forgotten memory holes of Gen X childhood. Oh, at the request of our, at the request of our listener Pat, who submitted a vast list of similar ideas, it was like wacky packs, <laughs> evil Knievel, uh I don't know, Night Court. We could just put them all together into one big I mean, Generation some, X. Some of these would be good. I mean, Doug Henning is actually a pretty good. Yep. The idea that stage magic was briefly super big deal. mass culture, big didn't, Broadway debut. Did he make the space or the uh, Statue of Liberty disappear? Who You're was thinking that? of David Copperfield? David Copperfield, the Dickens character, the, right? In the book you're reading, did you finish the book? At the end, he makes the Statue of Liberty disappear. I finished that book nine months ago. <laughs> Are you reading a new book with your little club? I, I didn't read one this summer because, you know, it's the summer. I had a lot of other activities. But look at this. Highlights Magazine, Billy Carter. I can't believe these have not already been shows. Oh, Billy Carter. Wow. We could talk about Billy Carter for an hour. Instead, we are going to do Luke and Laura. This is a show I actually have been promising to do for a while. Because uh, you and I talked soaps at one point. I can't remember what, what, which entry we were discussing it, but you did not have any childhood um, phase of American daytime television serials, right? Well, so I don't, I do remember talking about it, but my exposure to soaps, I did have exposure to soaps in the 70s. And it was that my babysitter, Alice, because my mom was a single mother and she worked what seemed like a hundred hours a week. We were all latchkey kids in the eighties. Yep. I had, we I came had, home and put, uh, something weird in the, in the broiler, <laughs> but just put sugar on bread and put it in the oven. I had a, a house key on a piece of red yarn tied around my neck, but I was not allowed to go into our house 
when there wasn't an adult around because it was I, haunted. No, I was a pyromaniac. <laughs> and you were haunted. <laughs> instead of instead of making sugar toast like any normal kid would, I sat with matches in the fireplace and lit things on fire, whatever I could find that would burn. And uh, so I, uh, I like how the only recourse here, you're so into it. Your only recourse is to ban you from the entire house. Yeah. Because I, you know, nothing th- else worked. This is long enough ago that there were, that I, a lighter would have been, there were no Bic lighters or if there were none of us had ever seen one. And I didn't have a Zippo that had my unit from Vietnam on it. So I just had matches. And you had burned down your mom's last three houses. I'd burned everything that would burn. And I would just sit, I mean, God, for hours, sit at the fireplace and just light fires. So I was not allowed to go home. So I had a babysitter, Alice, and uh, you went to Alice's in the morning. Mom would walk us up to Alice's. She lived in our neighborhood. She was uh, uh, your, your mom's age, younger woman? No, she was a little older, older than my mom, and she took kids into her home. And sometimes there were seven kids, and sometimes there were 12. Um, it varied year to year. But we went to Alice's. Well, from kindergarten to, for me, third, fourth grade. I mean, there was a certain point in time where you couldn't keep me out of the house during the day because I was a fourth grader. What are you going to do? You can't, you know, I walked home from school on my own. Nobody knew where I was and I'd go into the house and light fires. At that point, I had a collection of fireworks. So I was sending bottle rockets up the chimney. Um, The perfect crime. But up until then, so we went to Alice's and if you were sick... And couldn't go to school, you would go to Alice's and you'd have to lay on the couch with a with a thermometer in your mouth the whole time. Nobody ever checked it. And Alice sat. Did you have, did you have one of those ice bags? On a, your, a little ice bag on the head. Well, how old are you here, by the way? Well, second grade, let's say. So, well, kindergarten through third grade, and um, you'd sit on the couch, and Alice would sit at her kitchen table, which was, you know, next to the living room, and she chain smoked Moors. And during the day, she watched the soaps. Her stories. And then after the kids came home from school, she would switch over to game shows. See, that was my my childhood. I was always a game show kid. You were shocked to hear. Yeah. And at a certain point, you know, but there was Price of Right, Price is Right, and so forth. Did you call it Price of Right? Price of Right. (laughs) It was all Price of Right. And then she would switch over to like The Munsters, Hogan's Heroes, all, uh, all the great shows. All the boomer shows that were in reruns on, on local television. And so on sick days, I would watch back-to-back soaps from whenever they started, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. You would watch Richard Dawson in both his genres, I, I, The Feud I, and The Hogan's Heroes. And The Hogan's Heroes. Um, so we were, and of course, everybody my age was a huge Richard Dawson fan. Dawson heads. I mean, he never said, hey, should we kiss? Do you mind if we, he was kissing everybody. He was, so, a, he, was a, he was an icon to you. So I know a little bit of the vibe of soaps, but I never myself got engaged in any of the stories. It's, uh, you know, the 1970s. Soaps were in a bit of, uh, soaps were not forward looking. So I think the soaps were aware that their audience was aging and their audience had not started to precipitously decline, but the social changes that have led to the, just the dramatic death of the American TV daytime serial, women not being at home all day. Smoking more cigarettes. Depressed and looking for something to take their mind off it. Oh, wait. I, I forgot one crucial detail. She's clipping coupons. She read 
True Detective magazines <gasps> where the victims of violent crimes had their eyes blotted out with a black bar. And they had, you, you know, remember? Yeah, the, so it's photos. It's like it's photos, crime scene photos. Photos of people that had been dumped over the sides of cliffs. Wow, this or is a... had been strangulated. And she had these magazines. And so you'd go over and talk to her as she sat at the table. She never left the table and she never stopped smoking moors. But you'd go talk to her about something and she would close the magazines so you wouldn't be exposed to the grisly crime scenes. But if you were clever, you could sneak up and look over her shoulder and there were all in and, and that black bar yeah. over the eyes to, you know, so you wouldn't know who it was. But a lot of them were terrible, terrible murder pictures. I was, and she read these magazines day in and day out. I was thinking of Alice as a, as a kind of a type, a stereotype, but this is a very tellingly specific look into this woman. Well, and her husband was a cross-country trucker, but I don't think a serial killer. He was a nice man. I don't think either of them were serial killers. This was the beginning of your realization that true crime is for women, for whatever complicated nexus of reasons. As far as I could tell, those magazines were bought 99.9% by women. And most of the victims of the violent crimes were women. Well, speaking of entertainment for women, the soap opera has had... Omnibus podcast. <laughs> an omnibus podcast, for example. Uh, ASMR women. Just want to hear you talk, John. That's right. The Long Winters. Great entertainment for women, by women. Because the ASMR fans of mine can just zone out to Jeopardy every night. They don't, they don't need this show. Right. Uh, right, or they could just put on a put on a record of somebody extolling the virtues of a certain kind of motor oil and just turn the turn turn the speed of the record up by ten percent. No, it's got it's got to be me. Uh, entertainment that's traditionally for women does not always get the respect it's due mm-hmm. in our culture. It's a little like it's a like the way romance novels are treated today, where they're fully a quarter of the publishing industry, second only to I think thrillers, I think thrillers, you know, dad thrillers might outsell mom romance novels, but they're both just, you know, minting money. It's, romance novels are a billion dollar industry. And yet, you know, Tom Cruise makes Jack Reacher movies, but romance novels get kind of ghettoized and laughed at. And if I asked you to name a romance novel, a romance novelist, uh, could you, 50 Shades of Grey person. That is correct. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we also would have accepted. I, I'm just thinking, like, if you asked me that, I, all my reference points would be between 30 to 60 years old. Like, oh, yeah. I would say Danielle Steele or right. Barbara Cartland or something, you know? Nor, I, Nora Roberts, I guess. I thought about uh, doing a podcast where I watched romantic comedies with a couple of other people, and we talked about them, kind of like my late lamented uh, war movie podcast except something where I was really a fish out of water, rom-coms. Do you and your beloved uh, watch rom-coms? They don't really make them anymore. What? Really? I mean, that's not totally true. There was that J-Lo Owen Wilson one this year. Uh, Why did they stop? Is it all female? strong female leads now that are like assassins and stuff? I think it's maybe people don't go to the theater for that kind of entertainment anymore. Hmm. I mean, this was always the appeal of soap operas, that you get your stories, you get, you, you know, you get dragged into this serialized entertainment where you want to know what happens next. Cause we all love, we call them stories cause they, they're narrative in our lives and you don't have to seek anything out. You don't have to 
You don't even have to go to the bookstore for a new romance novel or mystery novel. You get to see Alec Baldwin with a skinny mustache as the Generalissimo. In your in your house, new stories are getting brought to you every day with this uh, motley cast of characters from a fictional city that you think of as your own. And they're very dramatic. They're all constantly... They're melodramatic. Uh, I mean, the roots of melodrama go back centuries. Certainly in the 19th century, you've got the sensation novels of the Victorians. You know, Uncle Tom's Cabin works as... I mean, we think of it as today as primarily for the social change it wrought, but for the following 50 to 75 years, it was mostly a basis for melodramatic vaudeville. Oh. You know, the 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 slave woman escaping across the Ohio River on the ice flows and, you know, which little Dickensian waif is going to die. I mean, these, these books were all serialized the same way soap operas are. Well, Dickens was. Sure. Yeah, and, 100%. And, and that was melodrama. Huh, that kind of didn't occur to me. I mean, when you, when you read the plot twist, you know, even Bleak House, the smart one, has all kinds of, wait, she's really the secret son of whom? Yeah. And then with Old Curiosity Shop, everybody can't wait to see if Little Nell is going to live or die. Right. They, and it's they really all, just what happens next. A character gets introduced, and then you know two chapters later they will play a pivotal role. There's never, nobody ever comes and goes. And there's the heightened emotions and the, the kind of the family Sturm and Drang. I mean, today... We actually use the word, I guess, I mean, soap operas came from horse opera, the idea that a Western would be called a horse opera, whereas jokingly, because these early radio serials were often sponsored by soap, soap and detergent companies, you know, as a funny variant on horse opera, they'd be called soap operas. And as a result, we think of a certain kind of... um kind of romantic woman-oriented entertainment as sudsy. Because it comes from the the soap industry and vibe. Um, what did we call those uh, prime time soap operas that were popular when we were in our 20s? Yeah, I mean, th- those were also called soaps often. I mean, sometimes people would say nighttime dramas. 90210 and Peyton Place. <sighs> well, and- I mean, they kind of start with Peyton Place in the 60s. You know, a best-selling sudsy novel for women. And by the time that the culture had loosened up a lot to allow for more and more kind of uh, licentious content Hello. in these novels. They could be a little scandalous. It wouldn't just be yearning for a, a, a certain unattainable man. Uh, it would actually be, well, let's, you know, let's get those breaches off him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once Peyton Place could actually, and those novels could start having scandalous content, you know, they'd get cleaned up for Hollywood and for TV. But, you know, that's where you would... That's where you would go f- to get uh, the hornier side of of mass entertainment. Well, I mean, I would go to see the prime of Miss Jean Brody, but yeah, right. Is that right? <laughs> Maggie Smith was your... Uh... <laughs> and there was another boom in the late 70s, and that's kind of the era we're talking about today. Dallas has become a big hit. Right. And then all the Dallas likes. It's always a... Unlike the daytime soaps, which often at the beginning would focus on uh, doctors or, or lawyers or neighbors, uh, an immigrant family... Um, I guess we're kind of jumping ahead. You know, the, the first U.S. the first soap opera is typically cited as uh, "Painted Dreams" on WGN Radio in, in Chicago in the 1930s. Oh, a radio show, sure. Yeah, an Irish American widow. Um, she has a single daughter, an eligible daughter, so that they're they're uh, you know they're kind of interlocking lives and loves can be the start of the show. Um, 
over the following decade, they became super popular on radio. The Guiding Light started in 1937 and lasted as a TV show till 2009. Wow, it was a, a single, a single 72 year storyline. And what is it all like? Like Marvel Comics Universe, it's all consistent within itself. Absolutely like- not. <laughs> it's more like a DC Comics scenario. And as we'll see, these shows are often not consistent within themselves from month to month. You know, parts will be recast. Revisionist history will tell you what actually happened, even though you saw it with your own eyes a month ago. Um, but these ones you're talking about in the in the 80s. Uh, what? Which one was Rick Springfield on? He was on General Hospital. Oh, okay. Thanks. Um, but these nighttime ones had had bigger stars, bigger budgets, and they were about the rich falcon crest this was the beginning of the reagan 80s and what all these shows had in common was these people have money to burn look at these fa- fancy oil family look at this fancy wine family look at this fancy steel family um they were all kind of cookie cutter here's the intrigues of not just normals um pining for doctor whoever but like rich people who can buy and sell you to get what they want mm. Ruthless. Uh, so it kind of a Reagan era take on what had been an Eisenhower era property. The first TV soap operas were, you know, kind of along the lines of as the world turns in the 1950s. And they all, you know, as I said, they all kind of derive from these kind of sensationalist serialized novels of Dickens contemporaries, maybe more Dickens is a little more high minded, maybe and it's smart and funny. What are some of the, of what we think of as classic novels that actually at the time were sudsy? I mean, a lot of these sensational novels derive back to uh, Wilkie Collins gets mentioned a lot. He's, you know, he's remembered today as the inventor of the mystery novel by virtue of uh, the woman in white, mm. I think is kind of the first, or the first detective novel where we follow a police inspector as he tries to solve a, a you know, there's, I think there's a jewel robbery and a murder. Um, but those had very kind of, a, and a lot of this stuff comes from Italian opera, you know, the Sturm oh, yeah. and drawing of the s- strong emotions and the, person who'd rather die than not have her love or the defenestrations, the duels and the, all the defenestrations. <laughs> um, these are operatic melodramatic conventions that then right. got fed into vaudeville with their, you know, you'd go to vaudeville and you'd see song and dance numbers, but interspersed, there would be a few minutes of a, of a, of a widow who doesn't know how she's going to pay the rent and a mustache twirling villain who has evil designs on her. I can't pay the rent. You must pay the rent. And all that, uh, you know, in the age of silent film, there are early serials like The Perils of Pauline, where, again, a damsel in distress has a different uh, terrible threat every week. You know, is she going to survive the plane crash or the... Pauline never actually got tied to railroad tracks, despite the hmm. popular idea we uh, we have of those kind of silent serials. But that's sort as, of a thing. As satirized by Dudley Do, right? Right. Um and so that was the DNA that got put into these daily serials where they, they couldn't all be as action-packed. It would really be more like, you know, will she tell her mom the secret? Will he confess his love to the nurse? Find out next week. Well, you see all those representations of it where there's a bunch of rowdy guys there to see the can-can, and then they have this melodramatic uh, interlude. And rather than being like, boo, bring out the girls— the 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 shot of the audience is all these guys are tearing Whoa. up and like you gotta save the grandma little Eva is that is that really uh, was that is that a true representation of of how a vaudeville show would play out if our test case today of Luke and Laura is correct then yes men do gravitate toward this kind of thing too when the culture does not 
shame them away from it. Because right. this is a moment where soap operas, this um, uh, housewife's genre, becomes mass culture for everyone from high school and college students on up, um, all ages and genders. And yet, weirdly, not me at all. You missed, missed it. All. You missed it. You were too busy uh, chucking firecrackers in your fireplace. I was. What? If you had a choice right now between watching a soap opera and sh- and chucking firecrackers in your fireplace, which would you choose? I would be watching my soaps, my stories oh, right now. Well. On November, I know where I was. I don't know who the outlier here in is. In November of 1981, when Luke and Laura were married, my family had just moved overseas, and the Armed Forces Network put on General Hospital and Ryan's Hope every day after school. I was in eighth grade. <laughs> Some of this is actually a generation gap because you are watching soaps when they are old timey entertainment with organ music playing. Yeah. And I have I'm watching the new cool the dawn of a new age of forward thinking soap operas that the early eighties brought. I was watching uh John Ritter try to figure out how he was gonna see Chrissy's underpants. The fact that you're you are saying this and thinking it flatters you, I think is it's a very <laughs> A crucial part of your personality. In 1962, sorry, in April of 1963, in fact, on April 1st, 1963, both ABC and NBC debuted new medical-themed soap operas. April Fool's. They were not, well, the NBC one was called The Doctors, and it kind of was April Fool's. It only lasted a few years. But the show that ABC debuted on April 1st, 1963 was called General Hospital. Mm -hmm. It took place in an... It was a black and white show set in an unnamed city uh, in and around the, the doctors and the patients at a, at a metropolitan hospital. Um, the city was later named in the 1970s as Port Charles, New York, mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of vaguely located in western New York, near perhaps near the Great Lakes. Um, it was a city that was big enough by the time I was watching it to have all kinds of spy adventures and intrigues, which was probably not... The intention uh, when it first came out and is not realistic to upstate New York, but never mind. Um, well, you know, there is a Port Chester in New York. There is. How, where is it? Uh, Port Chester is um, kind of uh, pretty close to Connecticut and really is more of a, it's more of a Connecticut than it's, it is like in a, New York. It's a bedroom community. Yeah, but it's, um, it's where uh, every year I play, I used to play um i would play neil diamond in oh, the last right. waltz at the big theater there in port chester where uh where the grateful dead and mountain used to play a lot of shows the fictional city of port charles i think is supposed to be a little further upstate the capital theater is the name of that place. but it has more than its proportionate number uh, amount of uh, of drama and intrigue um or you know originally a hospital is a good place to set a soap opera because a lot it, of people coming and going yeah, people with problems, right? Somebody's got a terminal illness. Somebody else broke his leg and may never play football again. Mm-hmm. People in crisis with uh, with lots of big emotions and tears hang on a hospital. So it's really fruitful ground for a, a soap opera. Do people have sex with each other in hospitals? Well, they the, must. Well, there was less sex on these shows. Oh, I see. In the, you know, you're thinking of a kind of a 70s and 80s versions of these shows that have lots of kind of rolling around in the sheets while music plays. Right, while they're... While, while love ballads play. Mm-hmm. Corny love ballads. This is much more organ music and, and big reveals like, but doctor, the test has come back and she's her own grandpa. Bum, oh. bum, bum. 
And in the 70s, General Hospital got a little more relevant. You know, people would come through the hospital for various addictions or eating disorders. You know, you can see how hospital lends itself to that kind of a ripped from the headlines kind of drama as you know, well. Marcus Welby vibe. I tried to show my daughter uh, Eight is Enough because I remember thinking Eight is Enough was a great TV show when I was eight doesn't that or have, ten. Doesn't that have kind of relevant soapy 70s stuff? So much. I mean, the fir- first of all, the first episode features Mark Hamill in the lead role, and then he, he left the show in order to take Star Wars. Yeah, they recast it. Yeah, but um, like the episode one and two were like, well, one of the kids is on drugs, and one of them had an abortion. A different and, daughter gets an abortion in every episode. Yeah, and it's just like, I was like, talk about ripped from the headlines. And They're and, like, Maude had one abortion? We can have eight abortions. <laughs> That's our whole premise. <laughs> my kid, I think, was nine, and she was like, I don't, this is really over my head. Um, but in 1978, General Hospital changed. Well, I mean, let me tell you what's going to happen here. We're, when I said I was, when I said in mid-November of 1981, when I was coming home from school and watching General Hospital, this was mass culture because that was the day that Luke Spencer married his love, Laura Weber Baldwin, for an audience of 30 million people. I remember Even though it was on ABC in the middle of the day. I remember this. It was in all the newspapers. It was in all the magazines. Cover a Newsweek. Cover of People, something happening on date, the ghetto of daytime TV was literally on the cover of Newsweek. Princess Diana sent uh, a couple of bottles of Bollinger champagne, apparently. When, kids, when kids, was that marriage? It couldn't have been that much earlier. I think it was the same year. Yeah. It, it was earlier that year, right? Didn't they get married in like spring or June or something? Yeah. So a few months thereafter, she's obviously unhappy because she's married to Prince Charles. She's at home watching American soaps. Didn't they have that? When, when did they have that thing where they were in a hotel somewhere and they, like, and they fell in love? Charles and Die. I watched. Some, they never fell in love. No, I watched some movie where they were mad at each other and not doing well, and then they had some joking time in Australia in some hotel, and they were like, "Oh, uh, maybe we a, can make it this work." This is an episode of The Crown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's what it was. Uh, yes, but they were wrong. They could not make it. Yeah, work. apparently no. Do not believe the romantic. Uh, uh, a Commonwealth hotel in Rhodesia that makes you think you can marry Prince Charles. You cannot marry Prince Charles. I want, I, uh, he just, loves Camilla. Uh, he just loves Camilla yeah, is the problem. True. Just yesterday, I read about a party at Elton John's house where Richard Gere and Sylvester Stallone were both trying to pick up Diana Spencer, who freshly divorced from Prince Charles and Richard Gere and Sylvester Stallone, who already hate each other. Sorry for, to turn this into a soap opera. They already hate each other because when they were re- when they were filming Lords of Flatbush. Oh, I didn't know this. Richard Gere spilled some chicken grease on Sylvester Stallone's pants and Sylvester Stallone hey, almost beat him up. Hey, hey and, and, that's chicken grease. And apparently uh, Richard Gere got kicked off of the of the movie. And so they had He's been- He's an ex-Lord of Flatbush. They'd been hating each other all these years. And then Stallone shows up at this party at Elton John's house. That was the Elton John was giving a party for Jeffrey Katzenberg. I have no idea why I remember all this. (laughs) And uh, it's just, you know, it's just, it's basically this show, except what we do when we're not rehearsing this show. And uh, Stallone was like, hey, you know, I I didn't know that this, you know, this low life was going to be here. And Richard Gere and apparently Diana, you know, they had a little. You've really got all the hot goss from 1994, John. Yeah. So anyway, Stallone, you know. He's got nothing nice to say about Richard Gere. Uh, that's so anyway doesn't help my segue at all. But uh, oh right, Princess, we were talking about Princess Di because yeah. 
r- rumor has it that she sent champagne. That she loved. So she was following ABC daytime dramas closely enough to send champagne. Thirty million people, college students skipped class. I've seen stories of like military bases shutting down because everybody was close was around their TV sets, wondering if Luke and Laura were really going to tie the knot. Including in the Soviet Union, was was uh, Yuri and drop off like? No, this would have been the perfect time for him to launch the missiles. Oh sure, because all of our bases were unmanned. Wait a minute, was Brezhnev still alive in eighty one? Yes, yes. Yeah. I think what's the year of three? It's eighty three or eighty four that they got all three of those guys. Yeah, right. Um, so maybe Brezhnev's a fan. I bet he was. Uh. Just to Why? Put this, just to put this, just to, I'll explain, but okay. to put this in perspective, 30 million viewers watching a daytime soap. Do you know how many people watched the Game of Thrones prequel that just came out, which is HBO's biggest debut ever? No, is it really? Yeah, AB, 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 HBO AB, just had AB, their... AB, 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 That's all, folks. HBO just had their biggest premiere ever. You're with, kidding. With whatever it's called, House of the Dragon or something. There are so many HBO shows that I would have thought had a bigger day, day but than Game of Thrones. 10 million people watched Game of Thrones colon more stuff. That's it. Yeah, a third the number of people that were watching General Hospital in mid-November of 1981. What's the biggest television? What, what did the MASH finale get? I mean, all of these will be dwarfed by primetime numbers. The thing about... Luke and Laura getting married is everybody was at work or at school. Middle of the day, yeah. I mean, the MASH finale, I'm sure, is going to be something like 50 to 80 million viewers. Is it more? Is it 100? MASH finale viewers. It wasn't a chicken. Whoa, 105 million people watched the final episode of MASH. Oh, I'm tearing up just thinking about it. Whereas HBO is high-fiving over ratings that would make a home improvement rerun in the 90s yeah, shows got sad. shows got canceled for having for having twice as many viewers as. That's right. Um, is that Game of Thrones show good? I have no idea. Why would oh, I know? Don't you guys have HBO? We do. You're rich people. That doesn't mean I watch. Uh, what is it even called? House of the Dragon. What do you mean? It doesn't mean you watch it. You watch I'm sure everything. It's fine. You guys watch everything. Uh, I have not yet seen. As we record this, that show is only a couple weeks old, and I haven't seen it. I did. You're, you're I did finally watch most of Obi Wan Kenobi and. Here's an update from a couple months ago. It's pretty good. Mm, it gets it gets better at the end. But that Darth Vader is a bad Darth Vader. He you doesn't know. walk like Darth Vader. Well, the guy's not tall enough. Like well, Darth Vader thing. was a big bodybuilder when they cast that British guy, and now they just think they can put Hayden Christensen in the suit. He he minces around. It's not Darth Vader. He doesn't. It's wrong. He can't say minces anymore. Oh. Well, he's not he's strong. He's twirling around in a big tutu. <laughs> he's not strong. He doesn't He doesn't convey Darth Vader, you know, BD, no. BDE. <laughs> big Darth energy. So you're um, you're watching Sandman, I'm guessing. Oh, I haven't seen Sandman either, but I hear it's good. Yeah, I think it was good. I'm, I'm just not watching it. as much TV as you're imagining. Oh, right, because you're a big Hollywood star. That is correct. I am uh, <laughs> spilling chicken grease on <laughs> Sylvester Stallone at, uh, at David Geffen's house. Can I want to do video? I want to put video. Are you pivoting to video? I really, you know, I got a Patreon. I want to have video content on there. What are you picturing? Well, it's just you noodling on a guitar or, you know, I want to have engaging videos that tell my story and that help me grow my audience and drive engagement 
and, uh, you know, promote my whole brand. I think people seeing me on video are going to be more convinced. What are you doing? Are you clearing brush in your ravine? Are you doing interpretive dance? Are you doing Polynesian fire dancing on video? All of the above, including, uh, you know, exotic dancing. I'm going to, like, show you how I can run down my hallway in my socks and slide, how far I can slide. I have some great news about Squarespace. Oh, Squarespace, beloved Squarespace. Our old friends, that all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business by, by, by creating beautiful websites for you. They make it easy to monetize your content in mm-hmm. a way that fits your brand. You can set up member areas that allow gated access to different kinds of content, like your slide sock videos. Mm-hmm. That's at the $10 level. Online courses, newsletters. Uh, you are going to be monetizing the heck out of your fire dancing in no time. Well, you know, memberships kind of fit with what I do, but what if I had a friend that just wanted to sell their products a la carte? Same thing. Squarespace has templates, easy to use templates that'll help you sell physical or digital products. All the tools you need to start selling things online. Well, I'm going to head to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And uh, when I'm ready to launch, I'm going to use the offer code omnibus to save 10% off my first purchase of a website or domain. Are we allowed to do that? Are we allowed to use our own 10% off code? Oh, probably not. Also, I already have two Squarespace uh, websites, so I'm not going to need that. Well, let's tell the people you, unlike John and I, you are eligible. Go Mm. to squarespace.com. Slash Omnibus. Thank you to Squarespace for supporting the Omnibus Project. Let, let's let's tell the story of how a daytime soap briefly became a cover of Newsweek type. How are you going to tell the story if I keep interrupting you? It, how will this ever happen? In 1978, General Hospital is on life support. Oh, a new producer has been brought in—a kind of a young, 90-pound soaking wet little uh, powerhouse named Gloria Monty. If you ever watch Tootsie, she's kind of the basis for the for the takes no crap soap oh. opera producer in Tootsie. Yeah, um, and it's funny. I, at some point, Tootsie and Soap Dish are going to be our only memories of what the soaps were like. Like these kind of the few times that primetime entertainment actually dipped their foot into that. Are none of these? Is this one of those things where they were all recorded on tape that got taped over by? By some Monday night football. General thing? Hospital was on videotape, and I think it all still exists. The thing is, there's no bingeable audience for it because for, for one thing it, it advances at a glacial pace right. every day it kind of has to recap hey here's what happened yesterday when you might have been ironing or you might have been putting down your crying baby um now we'll advance it a little bit here's one new thing that's going to happen but we just want to keep you hanging for tomorrow that was the my i think the thing i i liked about them the least was just like if you were sick for three days nothing new happened yeah and you just got told the same thing well, over it's and over. just easier to i mean those shows it's a new hour of TV a day. Think about the poor actors, but think about, you know, actors who have to kind of block it, then rehearse it, then shoot it in a matter of hours. Whereas a primetime show would have seven or eight days to shoot that much, that many pages. Did they record it one episode a day or did they do like Jeopardy and record five episodes today they a do, day? It was one a day, but today they do more to cut costs on these things. Now the cast of the three remaining soaps have to do more than an episode a day. And how much are they improving? It's got to be a lot, right? They're supposed to know the pages, but they, you know, they just got them. You know, well, I mean, they got them weeks ago, but they're having to do, I don't know, 20 to 80 pages a day. Um, so they become geniuses at memorization. 
the, having watched some General Hospital of this era in preparation for this, I can see that they are actually scatting around the lines quite a bit, looking for the lines. They don't have cue cards, but they're kind of looking upward, hoping that it comes to them, helping out their scene partner when uh, he forgets the cue. Uh-huh. There's, there's, this is evident, but they are pros. They have nailed this style of acting. I was just thinking about the poor writers that have to generate this much novelty a day. You can see why the plot advances so glacially. It's right. it's easier on them as well. Um, Gloria Monti is told in most versions of the story that she has a couple weeks to turn this show around. She has... Um, turn the show around. I think at the time she gets this ultimatum from ABC, she's been there a while and she has tried to bring General ABC. Hospital... Did I say ABC? Yeah, I think that might have been a Freudian slip. <laughs> That's what they called their daytime dramas. <laughs> Uh, she has gotten rid of the organ music of the past, and now there's kind of these new wavy synths. Uh Uh, The lobby of General Hospital is now, if you were watching at this era, it is no longer, it's now kind of a vibrant chrome thing with elevator banks. It looks like a real hospital instead of the 50s era set. I think I remember that transition. Occasionally there's like handheld camera. Um, The show has actually picked up the pace quite a bit. I mean, Plot incident does not happen more often, but scenes are shorter, so it's more like the the Sesame Street MTV era attention span. Instead of six long scenes, an episode will be twelve to fifteen shorter scenes. Is there like walk and talk? There's, I mean, you have to think these things are just blocked to be so you can shoot them in forty five minutes, right, right? You know, like somebody kind of walking over and looking out a window is as good as it's going to get. Even in a love scene, you know, there's. The actors are going to have to cheat toward camera and, and declaim. It's a weird style of, of directing and acting because it's got to be done on a budget. But despite all these uh, uh, innovations, the show is in trouble ratings-wise. And Gloria Monti has two weeks to make something happen. Whoa. She goes to one of her newer actors. Uh, a guy named Anthony Geary has been given a 13-week uh, stint on the show. He's not one of what you would call their contract players who's guaranteed a, a credit in a certain number of scenes. Oh, is this how it works? Yeah. There's a, there's a number of old guard that you know are going to appear. And then everybody else is basically day players. 13 weeks. It's like you get a, you get a, you sign on and then your you know, your character is going to die of cancer. Yeah. They're the kind of the creative decisions that would drive these things on other shows just do not happen here. You know, this, this guy needs this many scenes cause he's been on this show a year and our deal says he gets this many scenes. So we, have to find a way to involve the Quartermain family, even if they weren't going to be in this plotline. Is it is it flexible enough that if a if some actor or actress is really popular, that they will say like, "Oh, we we can't fire you." We will see that happen in a moment. Okay. But in general, it's the other way. Like if somebody's sick or gets a pilot, gets a real pilot, and they don't have a deal, suddenly a voice will say, "Today, the part of Colton Shore will be played by." And some understudy will just be there and all the actors will just pretend it's Colton. Oh, whoa. It is not Colton. <laughs> Anthony Geary was brought on the show to play a bad boy named Luke Spencer. Uh-huh. Uh, at the time, uh, a young actress named Jeannie Francis is on the show playing, uh, she's only like 17, I think, but she is playing a young law student's wife. She started out on the show as a rebellious teenage daughter of the of the Weber family of Port Charles. Um, Leslie Weber, I think, works at the hospital and had been a longtime fixture of the show. But um, this is a time when nowadays, or you know, from the '90s on, when soaps put in young teens, 
it's in hopes of getting a younger audience by having more relevant adventures. Uh-huh. Because, you know, their their cast, their contract cast members are continually aging into into um into senescence. Uh, back then you would bring on a rebellious teenage daughter because that's what the housewives watching would be, would, right. you know, be worried about like, Oh no, is Jeannie going to My daughter's smoke reefer bell bottoms and <laughs> right. Driving around in a, in a Pinto. So Jeannie Francis's character, Laura just existed to give her parents, uh, service and, and not come home in a timely manner and break curfew and, and, uh, and get involved with bad boys. But at this point, Laura had settled down with a young upstanding law student, and I think they had gotten married, Scotty Baldwin. So she was married to this clean-cut college student named Scotty, and they were now the good boy and girl of Port Charles. Um, Anthony Geary's character, Luke, had been brought in basically to break up their marriage. He was the brother of of a general hospital character, Bobby Spencer, who really wanted to break up Scotty and Laura because Bobby, a former prostitute, had, Mm. had designs on Scotty. There's, so there's always, it's like wrestling. There's, there's faces and heels and Bobby was a heel and she was going to bring in a bigger heel, this ne'er-do-well brother on heretofore unmentioned named Luke. And Luke could do the bad stuff that even Bobby could not do. Cause Bobby kind of turned into a hooker with a heart of gold character. Whereas this out of towner, he could basically be a, you know, it was implied he had, he was criminal connections. He was mobbed up. Um, well, here's what I don't understand, and I, may, I might be jumping ahead, but I remember this now, and I just Googled Luke and Laura, and I'm looking at the pictures, and Luke, and I, I thought this at the time, Luke does not, Laura is conventionally beautiful. Laura is a beautiful, young, Vaseline-smiled, blonde, blue-eyed thing. Yeah, she clearly has uh, veneers on her teeth, and she's got cool, kind of feathered hair, but Luke yes. has got a jerry curl. Correct. And he's half bald. He looks like Kevin Dubrow from Quiet Riot. <laughs> like he was not a conventionally attractive and and I still don't find him attractive. He kind of has a he's balding. He has kind of a blonde white man's afro. Yeah. And um kind of like shoulder bo- length. Both his look and his affect when you watch him on the show maybe it's because he came from playing a villain. He is not doing the standard competent, able soap opera acting line reads. He's, he's, um, he's got like, he's kind of, he's scatting around. He's unpredictable. He's sometimes exuberant and he'll whoop and holler, but also he's, he's very brooding. It's kind of a Brando like, I mean, it, it doesn't go that far, but as far as a Brando like method works on daytime dramas, Tony Geary is trying it out. He's kind of got these, these, hooded eyes like a cobra where he's kind of he's got this kind of dead stare yeah uh, like kind of like a dead fish he is not it's not just that he's not your average soap sex symbol he doesn't look like any kind of 70s or 80s sex symbol. no he looks like a he looks like a pastor like a teen pastor or a or a fitness instructor untrustworthy teen pastor yeah um, and this kind of, exp- if you've, you may have seen him in movies, even if you're not a soap guy, because he broke out enough that you would remember him as an oddball in movies. He was the, uh, the character in UHF that turns out to be a space alien. Didn't see it. Working at the station. You never saw the Weird Al movie UHF? Right now. How about the Fat Boys movie Disorderly? I, well, I was somewhat of a fan of the Fat Boys, but I didn't see Disorderly. Well, the premise of the movie is that, <laughs> exactly. The premise of the movie is that, uh. A spoiled, awful young rich kid wants to kill off his grandpa, so he inherits, and so he hires the fat boys to take care of grandpa. 
So, oh. so in this case, Tony Geary is playing the space alien uh, TV state local TV station employee and the unlikable rich weirdo. Um, Any other films that I have definitely not seen that had him in them? That's kind of the basis of his eighties uh-huh. career. I mean, there's. We'll talk about this in a second, but soap opera stars sometimes get kind of ghettoized. Yeah, like yeah. as much as it's talked about as a as a factory that produces your Alec Baldwin's and your Sarah Michelle Gellers and your Demi Moore's, it most often produces regular work for a kind of a journeyman type actor who did, could did, not make it in prime time. Did all of the people you just mentioned start on soap operas? They did. Demi Moore? Demi Moore was on General Hospital at this time in the early wow. 80s. She was Jackie Templeton. Um, so uh, Anthony Geary is an unlikely soap star, and he's brought in to, you know, to menace Jeannie Francis, Laura, try to break up her marriage to Scotty. But Gloria Monty decides to swing for the fences. She is going to have this unusual presence now front and center on the show in all his weirdness. And he is going to fall for this perfect blonde Miss America. Um, this perfect. Uh, what's the term we use for the, the perfect young American blonde? Zaftig. No, she's not Zafnik. She's apple pie. And, oh, well, you're uh, perfect and my perfect are different perfects. Girl Next Door. Girl I think that's Next what I'm looking door, for. Girl Next Door, yes. I like how when I ask for Girl Next Door, you say, you, you give me a German <laughs> word for, for big boobs. It's Yiddish, I think, but yeah. <laughs> um, and this, so his pursuit, this all turns on a dime in a now, um, what, infamous scene where content warning for sexual assault. Wait, he actually falls in love with her or he falls in love with her in a cynical way because he's a bad guy and he's trying to get something. He confesses that he, even though he's a bad guy who has just been making her and her husband's life miserable, actually he loves her. He then in the same scene proceeds to rape her. This takes place at a Port Charles uh, mobbed up hangout called the campus disco. I don't know why the mob would own Someplace that sounds like a student hangout. Well, you know, you, but never, it, you never know what the mob's going to do. Everybody's gone for the night. Herb Alpert's Rise is playing on the jukebox. Luke confesses his love for Laura. She gets squicked out. And then he absolutely forcibly has sex with her, um, you know, kind of pushing her off the bottom of the screen while, you know, Gloria Monty's patented handheld camera kind of roams through the lights of this disco. And then we come back in the next scene to find her uh, shaken and violated. Uh. She runs off and uh, is found in a park with torn clothing. It is absolutely a, uh, it is played as a terrible, violent tragedy. And yet the two have undeniable chemistry. (laughs) It's James Bond rape. Right. I mean, this was a time when uh, there was a much hazier line between date rape and what might be called forced seduction. And in fact, the show later provides some retroactive continuity such that both Luke and Laura think back on this encounter as a no, no, don't. If you watch the scene, she's saying no, 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 and never stops protesting. Never says uh, no means yes. Whereas in the kind of this squicky James Bond kind of actually what women really want kind of paradigm, you know, she never switches to actually, yes, take me, hold me. Um, And the fans love Luke and Laura together, despite this origin of their relationship. 
um, mostly because the actors are, you know, doing something on a different level than most soap stars. Um, they're at the top of their game. And Gloria Monty starts writing elaborate adventure storylines for them. At first, it's kind of a lovers on the run. It happened one night, screwball, cross-country vibe um, as they, you know, kind of go on the road having adventures together that bring that bring them together in hotel rooms whether they want it or not. F- filming it, it uh, still in the studio? They're just, they yeah. keep doctoring a room to be a hotel the room? The whole thing is it, is it uh, I think, Sunset Gower in Hollywood. And later, uh, no, probably later, this is around the time the show moved to ABC Television City in Los Feliz, uh, which is no, now it's Prospect Studios because ABC has moved to Burbank. Are they? Thank, um, thanks for that that insider tour, I'm sure. Nerd. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you guys are all wondering when General Hospital moved to Prospect Studios. It was around 81. Were they doing outdoor filming, like in the daylight? Almost never. That was very rare on soaps at this yeah. time. But So, you know, the whole thing would have to be done on redressed sets and on the cheap. And, you know, the same kind of street set would always be the street. And the same hotel room would always be the redressed hotel room. I would love to be a set dresser, like, during that era where it was like, you got to make this. You, you have, like, six hours to make this a completely different environment. But even this was so different than what other shows were doing. This idea that you would try to have these kind of Hitchcockian North by Northwest adventures, very ambitious for a late 70s soap. And very quickly, the show moves, in in fact, straight up into James Bond-style science fiction. An evil guy named, uh, let's see, it's John Kolikos, who was, like, always a, he was on Battlestar Galactica, and he was a, he was a Klingon on Star Trek. He plays Mikos Kassadine, an evil supervillain type who is looking for a, a diamond, not just because he's a diamond thief, but because it's the critical part in his weather controlling machine <laughs> that will allow him to take over Port Charles, New York, and then the world. Oh, John Kolikos, I remember him. He was in a lot of, he was in Star Trek. He's the very first Klingon in he, the very first yeah. Klingon Star Trek. He was in so many things. Well, on, on, uh, on General Hospital, he wants to uh, change the weather in Port Charles and then the world. So with a, with a special gem. With a diamond that makes his, his, his uh, weather machine work. He's going he's gonna to threaten the governments of the world with, with uh, a second ice age. And this was, again, as you can imagine, then and now super unusual territory for a daytime soap opera. But it really broadened the appeal of the show because like when I was a kid, I was like, whoa, they're having, you know, now there's like fist fights on the waterfront. And uh, at the time for these plot lines uh, to work, the writers introduced a, a world security apparatus called the WSB that for some reason also most of its members were Port Charles police officers. Oh, yeah. So the, there, it was a world security. Yeah, it was like an Interpol-like organization that also seemed to seemed to spend an awful lot of time in um, a Rochester-sized city in upstate New York, uh-huh. handing out traffic tickets. <laughs> no, they'd be oh. they'd be like you know passing microfish to the oh, commies. Yeah. The the KGB was never named. It was always the DVX, the evil, uh-huh. the evil Spectre. Uh, Eastern Bloc type Spectre Cobra. agency. Uh, so if you watch the show at this time and uh, and. Luke Spencer was always front and center in these adventure plot lines, and he was given a, a fun, wisecracking Australian sidekick uh, played by Tristan Rogers, with whom he had a really good uh, kind of rapport, and you could tell they were riffing on the script quite a bit. It was just a lot more loose and fun and Hitchcocky and James Bondian than you would expect in a in a in daytime romance entertainment. So this is what people actually wanted the whole time, and not 
not just the treacly kind of violin based entertainment, but they, I, they I guess wanted if this you much were, excitement. If you were a housewife in 1980 and you didn't like this kind of thing, you had plenty of other options and you could just switch back to Edge of Night. But this is what suddenly had a bigger audience watching the shows. You know, college students kind of getting into this um, kitschy entertainment, but also genuinely, you know, they could laugh, but genuinely they would want to know right. what was going to happen next. Is that guy really a lookalike? Is she a spy? And this is the dawn of 30-something boomers, right? They're, they're, they're all moms and dads for the first time at this point. They are having millennials. Yes. Uh, the first, well, I mean, I'm an elder Gen X, and I was watching this. Yeah. Or sorry, I'm a younger Gen X. You're a younger Gen X. Younger Gen X and elder millennials are eating this stuff up, whether they're- no, elder millennials would have been bonded right at this time, right? The eldest millennial would have been zero years old, but their moms and dads, 1981, 82, it would have been- Is that the the end of Gen X? Yeah, 80. I mean, Gen X is either in college, somewhere between elementary school and college at this time. Not in 1981, are you talking about 1991? No, 1981. Yeah, I'm talking about 1981. There were no Gen X in college. I was 12 years old. You're not the oldest possible Gen. Yeah, you're pretty close, actually. Thanks. Yeah, 1960. What are they? Whatever it is, whether it's 1964 or 1966. No, this would have been boomers. Yeah, middle aged or young, co- young boomers. The college young, students in '81. Yeah, it's right on the cusp. Late boomers. Right? Very late boomers. Well, no, if you're 19 in 79, you're born in 1960, you're Barack Obama's age. So it's a broader audience. And what's really driving it is that people love Luke and Laura. Hmm. Uh, the uh, the marriage, the, when they finally get married Mowage. in late 1981, it is a marriage that almost didn't happen. Uh, what had happened was that it looked like Jeannie Francis was going to leave General Hospital and Luke was going to lose his Laura. Why would she leave if she was so popular? She, I mean, all these people just want an offer from primetime. Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, some of them are kept under lock and key so they can make a living without ever looking for real work. Um, but Jeannie Francis had an offer. She ended up doing a, one of these um, Dallas Knots Landing shows for, I think, NBC called Bear Essence about the perfu- a wealthy perfume industry family. Oh, I thought you were going to say uh, bear, bear circus performers. The, yeah, it's uh, park rangers. Mm-hmm. A family of wealthy <laughs> I don't know, ye- Yellowstone rangers. <laughs> uh, who else was on this show? It had like Jessica Walter from Arrested Development was on it. I think Ian, a young Ian McShane when he's, I mean, he's very sexy now, but when he's kind of a leading man type. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, you know, big news that Laura Weber Baldwin would be would move to primetime and beyond bare essence. And Scotty Baldwin, who had, you know, a lot of these Luke and Laura shows were a, a love triangle because for a while she was still with her clean cut law student husband. Then they break up so she can be with Luke, but there's a lot of back and forth over that. And the actor playing Scotty actually left general hospital for a year, which slowed down the whole plot line, their whole love triangle plot line. But in 1981, uh, Elizabeth Taylor calls. Elizabeth Taylor. I bet you didn't think this was going to happen. No. This is, you know, she's still married to Senator Warner or future Senator Warner. When yeah. did he go in the Senate? Yeah, not sure. This is the waning days of her marriage to John Warner. She's obviously unhappy. She's at home watching soaps. Like everyone else, she loves Luke and Laura. And she says, I want to be on General Hospital. You're a kid. This would be fun. 
if I were on General Hospital, again, this is a previously unimagined imprimatur of legitimacy for this show business ghetto. And ABC, of course, will promote the hell out of Elizabeth oh, Taylor yeah. appearing on General Hospital. Well, she was, oh, I guess she was 50 years old. So. Is that right? In, around 1980? Yeah. So, you know, like 48. So, I mean, that's younger than me and I'm still hot. So she, look, she looks good. Yeah. Elizabeth Taylor looks great. Yeah. In the early 80s. I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of unhealthy crash dieting going on. and Violet eyes. And, you know, she's ha- having to hang out with Michael Jackson more than any normal person should. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's still uh, that's still in his uh, off-the-wall days when he was, you know, he didn't have a monkey yet, I don't think. That's true. He's less weird at this point. And she's not married to Larry Fortensky yet. No. But and she's not married to Richard Burton anymore, so... But she wants to be on General Hospital, and she, her only condition is that Luke and Laura have to get married. I want Luke and Laura to get married. I this is I have enough creative control to say that if Luke and Laura get married, I would totally be on General Hospital. This can't be real. What you are telling me cannot be real. She has a ultimatum. And did she also say like I must wear a turban? Now, are you looking at a picture? Because she does, in fact, wear a turban. She was probably wearing a turban when she called. Well, but but wait, she's Cleopatra. So is this some is this some like hat tip or turban tip to Cleopatra? She does play an exotic character. I think the Cassidines are supposed to be Greek Onassis type okay. millionaires. Right. Sure, she is written into the show as the widow of the John Colicos weather controlling character, the vengeful Helena Cassidine. Oh. Uh, so, you know, she, it's, it's Greek, not Egyptian, but it's you know, d- uh, Mediterranean exotic looks. He dies uh, in he failing is, to get the diamond? He is killed at the end of his weather controlling plan. And then she shows up not wanting to control the weather or? She's less interested in weather okay. than her husband. Like, right. you know, like a lot of these wealthy wives. Well, sure, she's husband not, and she's, wife. Who's she's gonna... not super into every uh, <laughs> element of her husband's business. Who's going to care about the weather more? Yeah. She's a little shaky on the weather controlling aspects of his business. Right. Uh, but Probably. she hates Luke Spencer and Robert Scorpio and all the other World Security Bureau uh, 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 soap stars who have who have doomed his plan because she's trying to control a one world you, you, government. Or you got to get over. It. Her husband died. She's oh, a vengeful okay. widow. Oh, I see. All right. The WSB has led to the death of. Oh, I see. She's vengeful on behalf of her dead husband, not vengeful against him and oh, his no, no, crazy I see. plot. I see. No, I, I get it. Okay. She still is a hundred percent into. I mean, if he says, "Honey, I'm going to control the weather today," she says. I mean, she says, "How high?" Yeah. If he if she <laughs> says if he says, "I'm going to make the temperature rise," she says, "How high?" <laughs> so between these two things, the soap getting first of all they got Scotty Baldwin back, so the love triangles back. Second of all, Jeannie Francis is going to fly the coop and we need some resolution to Luke and Laura. And third, Elizabeth Taylor says, and you can't break them up. It's got to be a wedding. The writers are now creatively hemmed in. Nobody can now appreciate what a big star Elizabeth Taylor was in 1980. Go to any supermarket checkout for a decade. And she is guaranteed to be on every tabloid and one of the, of the celebrity mags. People really cared what Elizabeth Taylor was doing. Long past the point that Elizabeth Taylor was really doing anything. So it's like, I don't know what the equivalent would be. What's the lowest possible cultural thing today? You know, the least prestigious uh, outpost of popular culture. And then just imagine 
the biggest star. Like suddenly Barack and Michelle are on an infomercial or something, you know? Right, right. Guest, uh, guest starring on. They're like, now, now tell me how this blender works, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like it, it was, that was a good Barack it was, impression. It's not that it was literally like that when Elizabeth Taylor called up ABC. So in November of 1981, uh, there's a massive, it's actually filmed outdoors. This doesn't happen much as you point out on the soaps, but it always seemed weird when you'd see soaps out in, in the air. Well, it's because they're shooting on videotape. So it's got that kind of cheap 30 frames a second look oh, yeah. that TV sports has. I've often thought they shouldn't do that. Like, couldn't they just print it to video and just, ha- or print it to film and have it look like NFL films? So it would look a little filmic. You know, I really, soaps were shooting themselves in the foot with that cheap look for decades. It just cost. Film's expensive. I mean, now you could digitally, you could make it have the texture and frame rate of film. Oh yeah, you could do it on your iPhone. Yeah, but people don't want that, I guess. They want it to look like a soap. It's even called soap opera effect when... When movies try to, or when TVs try to do the motion smoothing, or movie directors try to give you sixty frames a second immersion, because people just think it looks cheap and and uh, and kitschy. Yeah, it's the genre's fault, not the technology's fault. So uh, in August of that year, because the soaps tape a couple months in advance, everybody leaves ABC Television City, goes to some Hollywood mansion. It's the hottest day of the year. Everybody's miserable. The whole cast is there. You know, uh, the people from the hospital. The it's it's uh, the this gra- the grounds of this mansion are doubling for the quarter main mansion of Port Charles uh, old uh, old money family. So they had to put blankets over the palm trees. They try to make it look like upstate New York, and they have to make it look like upstate New York in November, which is the problem. So the characters mm. have to remark on what a unseasonably warm summer day this is. But the theme of Luke and Laura's wedding appears to be autumn. There's a lot of pumpkins, corn stalks. Uh, it's funny how much, even though this is some epical TV moment, how much side conversation there is about how beautiful the ham looks in the buffet and which side of the receiving line doesn't have enough corn. Uh, hey, have you noticed how beautiful the ham is? That is a beautiful ham. Cause all these, all these other little actors, you know, just the people who play the nurses at, at general hospital have to be there and they have to have their own subplots. There has to be stuff about the, the bridesmaids and whatnot. Michael Jackson's monkey is pooping all over everything. But there is a lot of uh, incident. As you mentioned, Elizabeth Taylor is seen lurking in the shadows in a turban. This is her debut? Uh, she has appeared the week before saying that she uh, is ready to, uh, you know, getting a, a shadowy team of messengers together to avenge her husband's death. And then from then on, you can just see the messengers because Elizabeth Taylor only agreed to do five shows. So it can be the messengers that are sending Luke and Laura ominous gifts on their wedding day, which in fact happens. Uh, you can see uh, Elizabeth Taylor in the shadows with no other cast members around because it was filmed on a different day saying, I curse you, Luke and Laura, uh, literally putting a, a hex on their on their nuptials. Um, That's why you should always wear an evil eye repeller to at any big event. Uh, I was actually talking to somebody the other day who always wears a charm bracelet with a little eye on it really? to keep the evil eye away. Are they Greek? Uh, Are they Turkish? Not to my knowledge. Hmm. They just, but they're, they're aware that there could be Greeks and Turks at any turn. There could. That's, you know, you go into Every a, time you step, step out the door. I just, I just wanted a halal Euro and. No. Uh, and then there's more drama at the end. Laura throws the bouquet and no less than her ex-husband, Scotty Baldwin, catches it. That's not how it works. And says, I'm going to contest this marriage. You're my wife, Laura. 
And then they, you know, Luke reassures her and they drive off on their honeymoon. It, the wedding spans two different days. It was uh, November 16th and 17th of 1981. Now, I watched the show, so you don't have to. And it's pretty, it's, it's campy fun. Um, I was in the Civil Air Patrol at the time, and I was probably... Were you mar- not allowed to take a day off to watch Luke and Laurie get married? No, I was marching up and down the square. Rick Springfield, not at the wedding, by the way. You, oh, he was in the cast. There's a cutaway to him at the hospital uh, saying, well, I couldn't leave. <laughs> I'm the I had, only doctor. <laughs> I had to cover for doc, uh, Dr. Brett. He's got a very unconvincing American accent. Isn't he Australian or something? Oh, no. Uh, he's from California, I thought. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Is he playing a... Does he play a... I don't know why I'm he's thinking He's got an this. unconvincing Australian accent. Oh, no. He is He is Australian. Rick Springfield? Australian. Yeah. I wonder how if he's been in this country for a while. Oh, I didn't know that. So he's like, oh, there was a terrible bus crash, and oh, that was a terrible bus crash. <laughs> he just kind of speaks in the slow, careful way people do when they're trying to sound American. You're hitting the R's too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a working class so, dog. So you see him at the hospital saying, oh, I had to cover shifts. I'm sorry to miss the wedding of the of the century. Um, the wedding had, you know, the show is kind of unremarkable, but the wedding had a number of effects on... The culture at large. I mean, for one thing, basically it it pushed soap operas into the popular conversation where you know that Elizabeth Taylor is watching and it's on the cover of Newsweek. And what am I missing? Maybe me and all my sorority sisters should get together and watch Jeopardy. Or maybe even like, you know, my frat brothers should get together and watch Jeopardy. In the industry. Jeopardy? Did I say Jeopardy? You did. General Hospital. Weird. Well, they're both daytime shows that start with Je. Oh, I suppose. Uh... It, within the soap opera industry, it started a trend. Libertarian. You remembered. There's a, there's a B in the middle. There's a B in the middle. It started a trend that became known as the super couple. Every show needed to have a Luke and Laura. They, oh. they decided this was their pathway to success. And the fact is none of them had kind of an eccentric actor like Anthony Geary to pull it off. But they all of them tried to push a protagonist couple that would always be on the cover of Soap Opera Weekly and maybe, fingers crossed, TV Guide someday. Um, didn't, uh, George Clooney start on a pod or on a show? Was George Clooney ever? Yeah. He had a podcast, I think just uh-huh. kind of him and some of his bros riffing on the, on the events of the day. I mean, he, didn't a bunch of those kinds of moody broodies start on all those early 80s shows I can think of that he was on was, uh, were sitcoms, oh. you know, facts of life. And, uh, I don't know if he was ever on a daytime show. Oh, he was on one of those nighttime. Wait, he was on ER. ER, that's what I was thinking of. Isn't that a soap opera? I mean, it's just kind of, it's the same general hospital um, playbook where all the doctors are sleeping together and then the patients kind of bring in their mystery of the week to solve or. or uh, doctors and nurses sleeping together? It's anarchy. That's probably the opposite of anarchy. Like, doctors and nurses, like, uh, having a quickie in a supply closet is probably <laughs> like the most expected thing at a hospital. So all the soaps wanted to have a super couple, you know, Days of Our Lives had to have Bo and Hope and try to make them happen. And and I think a lot of it turned into a real creative challenge for these shows, because if you have some established protagonist couple that's where it's always them against the world, that really kind of limits the amount of shocking changes and tragedies you can bring to the format. You kind of get inertia if it's the same, you know, it's uh, they got married. Now what happens? Do people actually get like shot and killed? On soap operas, are there like real, I mean, apparently there are rapes. Are there murders? Sure. I mean, there's, oh. there's, you know, henchmen are getting, sh- on General Hospital at this time, henchmen are showing up in town with a 
secret statue with microphone in it and getting shot and falling into the bay. Wow. Uh, it's a it's a tough life on a soap. Oh. The stakes could not be higher. These are very different than the ones I was watching in the 70s. Yeah. Where it was just like, oh, somebody, you know, tore my puffy sleeve. Organ music. <laughs> Organ hit. Jeannie Francis uh, left uh, just a few months later, left Port Charles. Her primetime show failed. But one of her co-stars on the show was a young actor named Jonathan Frakes. Mm. Later, they co-starred in a a couple uh, primetime miniseries together. They were both leads in North and South. They fell in love. And uh, Jeannie Francis is 60 years old today and is married still to Jonathan Frakes. One of the longest and happiest, by all accounts, Hollywood marriages. Anthony Geary. Jonathan Frakes, uh, he's number one. He's uh, from Star Trek. Oh, yeah. Uh, The... Anthony Geary was very uncomfortable with fame. Like apparently his kind of twitchy odd performance was indicative of a twitchy odd self. And he wanted no part of being a matinee idol. Uh, and he immediately decamped for Amsterdam where despite some subsequent returns to American daytime dramas, I think he mostly has been based ever since general hospital for the rest of the decade would go on to embrace these kind of action suspense, mystery thriller storylines. Um, but eventually, the bloom was kind of off the rose. You know, General Hospital only stayed the hot new thing for a decade, That's which is an eternity in the soap opera world. Right. Gloria Monti eventually left because The Young and the Restless had overtaken General Hospital. That's what, 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 what all the cool young people were watching. It had the coolest um, super couple. And General Hospital really never reclaimed, even though it stayed, you know, one of the few legacy shows that, managed to stay on the air. Uh, it never reclaimed its cultural buzziness of the early 80s. Well, now, what's the big, hot soap opera right now? Here's the problem. Soap operas have busted in a big way. General oh. Hospital had 30 million people watching Luke and Laura's w- wedding. It's still on the air, but I think in an average week, it gets less than 2 million viewers now. Oh. Um, there are three soap operas left. There are only three soap operas on American broadcast uh, airwaves for the first time since 1951. That number has been so low. Uh, General Hospital is still around, and then it's, uh, I think it's Young and the Restless and Bold and the Beautiful are both still. Even Days the of Our Bold Lives. Bold and the Beautiful. Even Days of Our Lives has moved to Peacock, where I'm sure it will probably not thrive because all the people old enough to want to watch Days of Our Lives do not know how to watch Peacock. Is Peacock a, a pay service? It's NBC streaming service in which some product is pay and some is not. No, no, none of the soap opera people are going to know what that no. is. I mean, when when all my children and uh, one other soap, um, maybe as the world turns, some one of the networks tried to move its soaps to streaming, and they lasted less than a year under this new because it's an even lower budget paradigm. These shows always looked cheap. Now they look even cheaper, and they can pay fewer cast members, so they're you know shedding legacy favorites. They can't bring back. Um, the big stars people like the soap opera industry has just been decimated by Love Island UK losing its audience. Well, yeah, okay. There's a few things happened. You know, more more women started to work. So for the last fifty years, it's just been a decline in the number of people. Well, a decline in our culture and civilization, <laughs> an increase in uh, you know uh, uh, an improvement in almost every way, except that there are not now a hundred million people trapped at home with uh, nothing but 
a bottle of pills and needing background noise. More cigarettes and detective, not right. uh, detective and magazines. Needing organ music in the background. Uh, but you know, within the industry, if you follow this this decline trend, you know, a lot of the, a lot of times they'll point at whatever is luring people away. You know, a a, a precipitous drop happened in 1994 when the OJ trial was airing during the day, and and it didn't recover. That's what happens. You lose track of your stories, and suddenly you don't care if anybody finds out that Kevin actually had amnesia because uh, Lucy shot him or whatever. You it's know? hard to come back in because you're like, wait a minute. Exactly. Oh. So once everybody and you know and uh, the OJ trial taught people that oh wait like real drama is actually much more involving in a way. And so today this audience is watching Judge Judy or oh. Maury or, or you know whatever these you know it's the same kind of. Soapy beats, but with real people. Involved. I thought you were going to say they all started victory gardens and became like vegan farmers. Yeah, they all moved upstate and uh, do make organic, grow organic lettuces. Um, over the so General Hospital is still on the air. Luke and Laura over the years have made various returns to the show. Um, for a while, Anthony Geary refused to come back without Laura, so he played a different character on the show. Luke's lookalike cousin. Well, what what did he end up? doing with his life he didn't like fame and fortune so what did he did he become a, a, a beet farmer he's happily smoking weed in amsterdam what do you want from the guy oh nice uh he's living it up shaka bra i mean these guys come these people come back to these shows in in 20 year cycles you know after a while playing a similar character on passions suddenly he's back on your favorite network and he's playing his old favorite character at, at one point luke and laura were remarried in hopes of recapturing this it was the 25th anniversary of the the original wedding, and so... Boy, that's writing. And I think both were married to other characters at the time. Scotty Baldwin, interestingly, the, the clean-cut law student who saw his newlywed wife raped and then stolen away by the scuzzball, actually was made to become a heel character. He became the show's kind of sleazeball rat character for decades just because Luke's face turn had to stick. Huh. Uh, and... I think most interestingly is the way the show has addressed kind of the the real creepy origin of Luke and Laura. Because for years they tried to ignore the sexual assault inherent in the relationship and both characters kind of remembered it mistily as a as a, you know, I will I won't kind of a kind of a clever seduction when we had all seen it General Hospital. And finally there was a there was a 1998 plot line where Future star Jonathan Jackson, future movie star Jonathan Jackson, was started out as a child actor on General Hospital, playing Luke and Laura's son, Lucky. Uh, a friend of his, later his longtime love, love interest and, and wife on the show, that character uh, was part of a, a sexual assault storyline where she was raped by somebody. And he really, you know, came to care very deeply about this issue. And then somehow he finds out that that's how his parents meet. Uh, that's how his parents had met. Like a decision had been made in the writer's room that they would take this by the horns head on and admit that there was a creepy, rapey element to their high watermark to the Luke and Laura storybook romance. And Laura has to sit her son down and be like, yeah, it was it was wrong. You know, consent's important and it's kind of the original sin of our marriage and we've had to deal with it. And the son's angry and Luke feels bad and has to, you know, work through this. And so 15 years, 17 years later, the show did a massive therapy session huh. based on the change in the culture. Uh, 
and confronted it head on. But it's just kind of a weird underbelly of the story that America's storybook wedding of 1981, if you know, if the UK had Charles and Diana, uh, had this weird forgotten origin. I'm just impressed that you've spent an hour just really, really telling me about your favorite soap opera from the eighties. And, and, and I got and, a bunch and, of people to like pay to subscribe to this. Yeah. And it didn't, it, it took me 20 minutes before I realized that this was just, this was just you describing your train set to me. And that concludes Luke and Laura entry 739.mt2210 certificate number 32511 in the omnibus. Futurelings in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are and have always been garbage. But you can find us at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, and at John Roderick. Our email handles were that. No, they were those things, but also the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. Uh, you can hang out with other Futurelings anywhere you type the word Futurelings, because it's all that you're going to get. Us. Futurelings! You can send us uh, real things, actual physical things at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington 98155. I'm laughing because I'm remembering <laughs> my Bitcoin wallet. All the great shows. Are you going <laughs> to plug it in every outro now? <laughs> no, I just remembered. I will, I'll immediately forget it and never, never mention it again. Speaking of our post office box, a listener named Todd sent us a, a coffee table book called The Aloha Shirt, Spirit of the Islands. And a post-it says, this book is for Ken since John surely knows all contained within. Oh, oh burn. No. Well, who's wearing what right now? I know. Well, maybe I can, I'm wearing this uh, Beach Boy. I'm going to get in my Woody and and to go hang out with the yeah. Beach Boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a dream last night that I met somebody at a party who was also wearing an Aloha shirt, except a completely different headspace than mine. And he was, I picture him in this dream. He was much smaller than I was. He was a small man, and he was wearing a rayon Aloha shirt. Is that good or bad? Uh, well, it's just very different. It's more of a rayon shirts are very expensive. This is a very this is a very Freudian peek into the recesses of your mind. Yeah, and he had sunglasses. A lot, lot more on. about Aloha shirt fibers than my dreams. And then he kind of looked like the psychologist on Mash, and um, and uh, we hit it off. And I was like, "Isn't that a meat cute?" Like we both like uh, different kinds of Aloha shirts, so we're not in com- competition with each other, but we appreciate one another's vibe. These are amazing. And then I woke up and I was crying. Look at the illustrations of these shirts in this book. This one has portraits of Hawaiian royalty. Those are great. I think I don't know. Would Todd allow me to re-gift this to you? Well, I feel it's like you're going to you know, get more out of like it. Like most of the mail, you're just going to leave it on the floor. People do send us a lot of books, and I figured out why. Go on. It's cheaper to mail them. Oh, because of... Media uh, mail. Oh. <laughs> That's why nobody's actually sending you, um, you know, ivory handled revolvers from the Spanish-American War. That's or whatever, too bad. Whatever it is you want. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, please support the show at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Your patronage uh, helps us make the show, and there are lots of cool things that you can only access by subscribing to our Patreon. You can see photographs of... All of the things we get, and and uh, you can receive actual copies of our handwritten show notes that have some of Ken's DNA on them. At the most rarefied levels, you can even suggest a topic for a show like Pat did or, today. 
or see us on a Zoom call that we have with you. We will hang out with you. Yeah, that is, you know, I don't know. That's probably $10,000 a month you have to pay for that. Beats me. I never see the receipts. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the audience.